Well, we, um, last week we did a little bit of Daniel 6 and we read chapter 7. And it was, to me, a really, not that I read it good, but it was a great reading because reading Daniel 7 is as one of the introductory um, visions that's part of chapter 7 through 12 kind of gives you an overview of what's happening and what he's going to be seeing over these next uh, number of chapters as we study them. But as we noticed last week, the first six chapters of Daniel are entirely different than the remaining chapters of Daniel in that Daniel 7 through 12 really has a lot of apocalyptic type literature in, in, in it. Um, there are four visions we mentioned that are told in these next six chapters. One will be in the chapter 7 tonight. One is in chapter 8, one is in chapter 9 with a prayer, and then there's a long vision that encompasses chapters 10 through 12. Each date of the, of the visions is given in these particular chapters. Uh, the chapter tonight, and let me go ahead and just tell you where we are. <laughs> the chapter tonight um, is in the first year of King Belshazzar. We've studied about Belshazzar before. He was the crown prince. His dad was Nabonizer, and uh, who, after three years, remember when he was king, he departed, left for 10 years, and left his son in charge. So they were kind of co-regents. The second vision is also going to be in Belshazzar's reign in the third year of his reign in chapter 8. When we move into chapter 9, we see that in the first year of Darius, there's uh, the vision that Daniel will receive then. Uh, now Persia is in control of Babylon instead of the Babylonians. And then the last vision will occur two years after that under the reign of Cyrus, who is the ultimate ruler of the entire Persian empire at that particular time. Now, all of these uh, visions are very fascinating to us. It's, it's simply amazing to read and try to put yourself back in the situation where he is seeing these things in his visions in the night dreams. But it's all about events that would come to pass over the next three major world empires uh, after Daniel's day. And, and one of those things that would also take place, remember during the fourth kingdom, it said in chapter 2, was the establishment of God's kingdom, which unlike the other four, will stand forever. So the details are very, very precise. We mentioned that the details are so precise that a lot of Bible critics say there's no way Daniel could have written this when he wrote it in roughly 530. It had to be later because there's no way somebody like that can describe these details as vividly as he does. But obviously he could not have done that unless God had helped him, unless God had told him those things. And so that's how it was made part. God is the one who made that happen. But even when we see these things, we have to always remember, Daniel's not recording events that he's seeing. He's recording things that he will, that will happen down the road. So we need to make sure we read, study the visions carefully, not get bogged down into the details about each particular detail so closely that we miss the overall lesson of the vision. And the basic lesson is God is in control. God is in control in the first year of Belshazzar. God is in control two years later when he has a sec two years later when he has the second vision when Belshazzar is still the ruler. God is in control a few years later in the first year of the reign of Darius. And God is in control two years later when Cyrus is now the emperor. Well, he's always the emperor, always there. But it's just 
He happens to be the one there that's, that's mentioned. So the bottom line is God is always in control, whether it was during Belshazzar's reign, whether it was during Darius's reign, Cyrus's reign, the reign of kingdoms today, God is always in control. And one thing we need to make sure we look at is it, this particular events, God seems to be planting these visions in Daniel somewhere between the ages of 67 and 80 when all these key important events are happening, making them know that God is in control. God will establish his kingdom in spite of any opposition that might come against him. So let's just make sure we visualize what Daniel is seeing and listen as he explains them. Um, my approach is going to be to let the inspired writer describe his, his dreams and his visions and just let him give the interpretations as he himself gives them. I will be providing additional comments when I think it can be firmly established by scripture as to what things are or by history itself. We're, we're very, very lucky that we have the God-given Bible and history that we have because we know that the markers are Babylon was told by Daniel, you are the head of gold. Remember he said that, Daniel chapter 2. And then we know when the church was established in the days of the Roman Empire. So we have the outer bun, we have the inner bun. Now we just got to figure out what happened in between. And so that helps us to go back and look in history. But Daniel is, is frankly puzzled by some of these things. He's looking ahead trying to see what, what is all this about. And guess what? God doesn't tell him. God doesn't tell him every detail that is going to happen. It will happen over time. But he's, he's told it in a way that he scratches his head, but he moves on and he accepts it. So this particular chapter represents the conclusion of the first half of the book of Daniel. And that's evident for several reasons. First of all, remember this, we're part of the, uh, we're in the Aramaic section of this book, which was in chapter 2 through chapter 7. And if chapters 2 through 7 represent an unbroken section of Aramaic in an otherwise Hebrew book, then it stands to reason that we must conclude that it comprises a unit in and of itself. Last week, very hurriedly, I pointed out how in this Aramaic section, the chapters are very closely related in a poetical way that at least what I'm trying to read about, it seems like everybody who understands Aramaic goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I don't know Aramaic from Greek, but I'm just reading, telling you what I read. So if you disagree with me, I'll give you the uh, people I'm talking to. <laughs> but uh, we mentioned chapter 2 and 7 show that God knows and controls the future events regarding the kingdoms of men and most importantly, the kingdom of God that will be established during the reign of the fourth kingdom. So the image of chapter 2 that we went back under Nebuchadnezzar's image, when he saw the great uh, image standing in front of him with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of bronze, the legs and feet, its, remember its feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, represented all the various kingdoms that would arise one right after another. You recall that we mentioned Daniel chapter 2, verse 38, Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head, of gold, the head of gold. And that was our first stake that was driven in the ground. All four of these metals in chapter 2 match right up nicely with the beast that are mentioned in chapter 7. And we might mention as well that the kingdom is identified there in chapter 2 shows what might be regarded as the more human aspect of these world kingdoms. But when you flip over to Daniel chapter 7, 
you see the more baser and cruel aspects of these kingdoms that are now mentioned of these four world powers as they are pictured by these uh, voracious and vicious beasts. Then we mention chapter 3 and chapter 6 kind of go hand in hand. They show how God is in control by demonstrating his power to rescue his people from two men who were the heads of world empires at the time. Remember chapter 2 with Daniel, with the Babylonians regarding the, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember Nebuchadnezzar said, and there you go. And God said, not so fast. And then we have Daniel being thrown in the lion's den because of the little fancy decree that was made up. And Darius didn't want to do it, but God said, no problem. I've got them. I've got Daniel. I've got his back. And so God shows he's in control by demonstrating his power over these two men and their decree. And then we mentioned finally chapters 4 and 5. So it's like 2, 7, 3, 6, and now 4 and 5. Shows how God is in control by showing how he humbled Nebuchadnezzar, the great mighty king of Babylon, along with the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar. So the book of chap the book here, and or the chapter seven, then also serves very well. It just simply rounds out this first section of the book, and it's truly a really a fitting climax to the first half, because in chapter seven we see a very glowing testimony to the eternal nature of the kingdom of Messiah. It was hinted at in chapter two. It's now specifically mentioned in chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. Again, once it was introduced in Daniel 2, verse 44. Remember, he said there, in the days of the fourth kingdom of these kings, the kings of the fourth kingdom, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces. It will consume all these nations, and it shall stand forever. So even though chapter 2 does not specifically mention the Messiah, the present one places the Messiah smack dab in the plan of God, exactly where God wants it to be. So that's kind of the Aramaic section of the book. It's a general message given to people and the world at large who understood the common language of the time, which was Aramaic. And whereas the rest of the book, we also called the buns of the book, represented the, the it was directed more at Israel, and it was written in their native language, that is Hebrew language. And nothing changes in, as far as the background of chapter 7. Daniel hasn't, hasn't left the country. Daniel's still in the court. He's still a captive, even though he has a very important position as an official. But this is in contrast to the earlier years of his life where the first six chapters show what happened in his period of his youth. Um, chapter 7 is also interesting, too, in that remembers in chapters 1 through 6... Daniel had been the interpreter of the dreams and the visions. And now the role is reversed. Daniel is now going to have the visions. And then angelic attendants, as we will see, are going to be the interpreters of the meaning of the visions that, that the prophet is now having. So there's a reversal here that will be happening in these particular sections. Chapter 7 may be regarded as the most important of the entire book. Um, we talked about it. I already said that. Never mind. Uh, well, no, I didn't say this, though. 
It first acts as a bridge between the two main sections. In that, chapter 7 shares the language of chapters 2 through 6, Aramaic, but then it also shares the atmosphere of chapters 8 through 7, which puts everything in the realm of heaven that we're going to be seeing. It's actions, a chief action in heaven rather than on earth. Whatever happens on the earth will ultimately be settled and rectified in the courts of heaven. God is in control. Chapter 2, we were shown a dream which envisioned history depicted in the four terms of the metal. These metals were all different, uh, but they represented a succession of human empires. However, God's sovereignty and control of history was seen both, and this is critical to remember, his control of history and his sovereignty was seen both in hell. What did he do with the image? He destroyed it. And then he established his own eternal, indestructible kingdom. All that is hinted in chapter 2. It'll go on. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Chapter 2, though, did not contain any specific mention of uh, persecutors or uh, any monstrous actions like we're going to see of these beasts in chapter 7. But here in chapter 7, we're looking at these four great world empires through the symbolism of four huge beasts that are coming out of the sea. And it soon will become clear to us that Daniel is peering past the first beast, the second beast, and then the third beast, and he finally gets, oh yeah, my eyes on that fourth beast back there with all those ten horns, and then there's this little horn that's growing up between it, and it's plucked out three of those horns. And that's what is going to be getting his attention. This beast is going to speak profound words. It's going to be persecuting the saints. And all of that is going to be handled through this little horn, verse 25. So when we get into Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, there is a very quick introduction. And it is interesting that Daniel pretty much has been telling this story from a third person. He tells in verse 1, third person introduction. In the first year, Belshazzar came, Daniel had a dream. Like, He's talking about Daniel. But then in verse 2, it switches back now to first person. And he's going to start telling about the scenes. We mentioned there are four scenes here in Daniel chapter 7. The first scene is verses 2 through 8. And that is the vision of the four beasts. You have verse 4, the lion with the eagle's wings. You have verse 5, you have the bear that rises up on one side. Verse 6, you have a leopard with two sets of wings. By the way, how many of you have seen a leopard with two sets of wings before? Yeah. How many have seen a leopard with one set of wings? No. <laughs> um, so that's, these are the things that are, see, that are getting his attention. Uh, you've probably seen a bear rise up on one side or you know, that kind of thing. But uh, you haven't seen anything like this. And then he gets into the fourth um, animal in verses 7 to 8. When you notice, he said there's no animal to compare it to. There's no animal name that's given. It's not like a leopard. It's not like a lion. It's not like a, a bear. It was so dreadful and terrible enough by itself that he just says, it just has these huge iron teeth. <laughs> it devoured. It broke things into pieces. It trampled the residue of anything with its feet and what it couldn't devour, it trampled to death and crushed it in the earth and just destroyed it with rage and with wrath. And it was different from the three beasts. And the most notable feature was those 
ten horns. And that's what attracted Daniel's attention. The second scene is in verses 9 through 10. And that's where we see the Ancient of Days comes in and takes his seat on the judgment thrones and the judgment scenes that are being set into place. And we talk about the Ancient of Days. His garment and hair was a pure white. His throne was of this mighty, fiery flame. Its wheels were a burning fire. The text will tell us a thousand thousands ministered to him. And then 10,000, 10,000 were stood before him. We might say in our own vernacular that the court was seated, the books were open, and court is now in session, which is really what verses 9 and 10 is all about. Well, if the court is now in session, who's on trial? Well, that is answered in verses 11 through 12, which is the third scene, and that is the destruction of the fourth beast and also the uh, judgment against the first three beasts. So in verse 11, we talked about Daniel. He heard all these pompous words of this fourth beast who's still talking as judgment is going on, <laughs> which is also catches his attention. But then the ancient of days found the fourth beast guilty. Judgment was pronounced. Judgment was executed. And Daniel saw it all right in front of his eyes. This is all in the third scene. And then he also saw the sentence against the first three beasts whereas they had their dominion taken away. The fourth scene is in verses 13 through 14. And to me, it is the most spectacular of the four scenes because it is, to me, covers the most important thing in Daniel chapter 7. Here the Son of Man appears. The Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14, the Son of Man is then given dominion, glory, and an everlasting kingdom that all peoples nations and languages would then serve and follow him. It is said a kingdom that would never be destroyed, unlike the four kingdoms that are represented by these four beasts. So the message of Daniel's dream is very simple. It's very clear in its context, and it's that successive kings, successive kingdoms, symbolized by these four strange creatures, will arise and they will act arrogantly against God and against his people. God's people will often be brutally, um, brutally treated, but eventually these kingdoms will be judged, they will be removed, and eventually they will face divine retribution for what they have done, for the crimes that they have committed, and then they will finally and utterly be destroyed. God will bring them for all. But in place of these four savage kingdoms, the Lord will establish his own kingdom. His own kingdom will not be a savage kingdom. The Prince of Peace will head it up. Unlike these four emperors or these emperors and these kingdoms that are displayed in these particular kingdoms, God's kingdom will have a kingdom of righteousness, an eternal kingdom under the rule of the Son of Man. And I think that is the essential point of this particular chapter. And we should never forget that. It's a message of hope. It's a message of encouragement for the Lord's people at that time, to me, just like it is for us today. Knowing that God is in control helps me, under, helps me sleep at night, helps me know that God will take care of matters in God's own hand. God is in heaven, and no matter whether we think things are right in this world or not, he is still very much in control. And when the final chapter of this whole story is written, 
He will have brought everlasting justice to the wicked, and he will bring eternal peace to the faithful at the hands of the Prince of Peace, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And with that, we can just go home. <laughs> but let's now turn our attention to uh, some of the verses of chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, one of the things it mentions there, I just, I'd like to bring out some of the historical context of some things. In chapter one, chapter 7, verse 1, it said that this took place in the first year of Belshazzar. That would have been someplace historically between 553 and 554 B.C., about 14 years before the fall of the Babylonians to the Persians. You recall Babylon fell in chapter 5, the night that Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, Okay. And remember those four words, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Um, but to put this into context, remember if Daniel had been 14, 15 years old when he was taken captive, he would now be somewhere around the age of 67 when this is taking place. So we're talking almost 50, well, a little over 50 years have elapsed since he has been a captive in this particular country, which is now under... Well, this, this time it's still under Babylonian rule. And remember, we're also told that Daniel just simply has a dream. He wrote down the dream. He wrote down the main important matters of the dream. And then it talks in, chapter, in verse 2 about these four winds of heaven. Probably some kind of reference to the north, south, east, and west winds stirring up this great sea. A lot of people think it's maybe an allusion to the Mediterranean since it was so close. I don't know. It doesn't say. But... Uh, to me, even these seas are strange in and of itself. Most storms, when they pass through here, sometimes you have, you have storms that will be hitting from the north and hit from the south, and it produces tornadoes, right? Well, these have winds coming from all four points of the compass. So it's really whipping things up. <laughs> this is a massive, massive storm they're talking about. And so they were coming from all points of the compass. Oftentimes is... Uh, in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, the analogy of the sea is used to symbolize very powerful nations of the earth. So here Daniel is simply informing us that these enormous animals are rising out of the sea, telling us they're probably from these nations of the earth, which seem to always be in a state of agitation, a state of unrest, a state of chaos, trying to demonstrate and get power and take over. Verse 3, we said that these creatures portrayed in Daniel's vision are numbered precisely as four. There are four of them. And uh, by the way, how many metals were mentioned in chapter two? Four, okay? So they're described as great animals. These are not minor military and political adversaries. These are major political, major military adversaries that are rising up. And in verses four through six, we saw that description of these beasts. The first one was like a lion. It had... One pair of eagle's wings. <clears throat> Even the Atlanta Zoo doesn't have a lion with one pair of eagle's wings unless somebody made wings and popped them on there. That's what Daniel's now seeing. But as a result of these wings being plucked off, it could no longer soar through the earth and through the heavens like it, had, like it used to. It had to stand and now it has to walk, it says, on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. What's that tell you? The best of the days were over. Now you're just an ordinary man. And it's interesting to note, 
that the lion symbol was, the lion was symbolic of, of the city of Babylon. It's the most recognized symbol of that. It was strength, it was courage, and it was a very appropriate description of Nebuchadnezzar in particular, but not so much of the people who came after Nebuchadnezzar. They were just kind of ordinary men. Uh, Babylon was very powerful. They were very swift in their conquest, but once their wings were clipped, there was just ordinary men. All the successors after him never rose to the level of Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, at one time, he roared like a lion, had the swiftness of an eagle, but all that was taken away. And he simply became a regular man walking on two feet. In verse 5, we see a picture of a bear raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth. And not only... Did it have the three ribs? It was told, you aren't done eating. You need to go devour more people. There's more that you need to be taking care of and eating and, and devouring much flesh. The traditional interpretation of the second beast is associated with the same thing we saw in chapter 2 of the chest and arms of silver in chapter 2, which corresponded to the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, you recall the Medo-Persians defeated the Babylonians on the night that Belshazzar saw the handwriting. This second world empire is represented by a bear here. A bear. You ever met a bear? And I'm not talking going through the Smoky Mountains and you go, oh, that cute little bear, and you stay in your car. <laughs> You've seen pictures of bear, videos of bear. They look like these little bitty teddy bears. And then all of a sudden, something provokes them. Something stokes them. Somebody gets too close to the cubs, and what does that bear do? It becomes a force to be dealt with. And that's the exact same that you see here with the Medo-Persian Medo empires. Um, they were, a, they were a, uh, a major force to be dealt with, but in contrast to the first beast, they did not have the speed of the first beast nor the speed of the leopard that's coming on the third beast. The three ribs between his teeth simply suggest that there's more powerful creatures that have to be killed. Uh, this view of raising us up, up, up on one side seems to have internal reference to this one-sided union of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes, the Persians are the ones that had all the real political power. The Medes were the ones that had all the bureaucratic positions. So the Persians really had all the power. Um, in verse 6, there was the leopard with two sets of wings. In other words, it had four wings on it. It also had four heads. And the temporal... The, uh, the uh, traditional interpretation of this third beast is associated with the thighs and belly of the bronze altar in chapter 2 and corresponds to the Alexandrian Hellenistic Empire, which was established by none other than the famous Alexander the Great, who was born in 356 and died at a young age of 33 in 323 B.C. This creature assumes the form of a four-winged leopard, which has four heads, and seems to be portraying the division of looking back at history of Alexander's swiftly won empire being distributed or separated into four empires shortly after his death. It was said that his army swiftly moved quickly. And um, remember, the first beast only had a single pair of wings, whereas this beast had two. <clears throat> Can... Two engines sometimes go faster than four, or can four go faster than two? It all depends on the engine, I guess. But anyway, in the fourth verse, or the seventh and eighth verses, we have the fourth beast. Unlike the first three, 
we said there was no animal to compare to the fourth beast. It was just dreadful. It was terrible. It was strong. It had beautiful white iron teeth. No, no white teeth. Huge iron teeth, which also seems to go with its iron legs in chapter 2. It broke and devoured anything in its path. And then the traditional interpretation of this fourth beast. Remember, what would happen during the fourth beast, fourth kingdom? God would set up his kingdom. The traditional interpretation of this was among conservative scholars is associated with the Roman Empire. This description given here kind of signifies a cruel, a vindictive world power, and Rome certainly, according to history and archaeological records, could never get enough of brutal conquest. It was just a brutal nation. And also the greatest world dominion in all of world history. Those who oppose the view of the Roman Empire principally do so on the basis that prophecy cannot predict the future in such an accurate manner. And that's what we talked about earlier. Did Isaiah predict exactly what God, what happened to the Christ? Yes. Daniel's prediction would have been stuff that happened over 500 years. Isaiah's prediction was roughly 700 to 750 years before Christ. If they didn't believe Daniel's prediction, do you think they believe Isaiah's prediction? No. <laughs> if God is telling us about events and God is in control, then as long as God is telling us, we can count on it. Okay? And that's the bottom line. In verse 8, we see this, this beast was very different in that, remember, the first and third beast had wings. The second had ribs, but this one has the ten horns, which attracted Daniel's attention. And he had the mouth of the south. He was arrogant. He had outlandish speech. Um, and it was enough that his speech got the attention of the Ancient of Days. <laughs> I would hope my speech never gets the attention of God Almighty, unless it's a great thing or, or a, a wonderful grace that I'm coming out of my mouth. And even we said in verse 11, while court is in session, this guy is boasting, boasting and arrogantly saying things until he was slain. Now, in verse 9, in contrast to the Wintel Sea, Daniel now sees a vision of something that is orderly. There's a setting of the judgment scene. There's this calm dignity of these celestial beings before God in human form. He sees judgment thrones being set in place. He observes the Ancient of Days being seated in front of him. The court is seated. The record books are brought out. And these record books, it doesn't say what's in there, but I'm assuming it's exposing the deeds of these wicked beasts. Judgment is given, and then judgment is executed. <laughs> That in contrast to the ancient of days, who's portrayed as holy, uh, reverent, judicious, august, wise. So there's always this contrast going on between the wicked and the, and the wise. He, uh, the reason he lifted up his gaze from the scene below was explained in verse 11. It was on account of this loud and boastful utterances that are proceeding out of his mouth with this little horn. I'm sure Daniel's thinking at some point this guy has got to be dealt with. 
And sure enough, he was. God, in his own time, had judgment. Judgment was time, and he was found guilty. He was found wanting. And I think it's only apparent. It's scary when you realize that these kingdoms are going to be held accountable for how they conduct in the affairs of men, but so are we, aren't we? All of us are going to be appear before the judgment seat of God to give an account of the things that we've done, just like these empires had to give, be given an account of what happened to them. It's appointed for men once to die, but after this judgment, Hebrews 9, verse 27, God winked at all these times that he's overlooked, and now commands everywhere men to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world Acts 17, 30 through 31. Verse 10 mentions fire that proceeded from his throne. Fire can be positive. Fire can be negative. Here, it seems to be dangerous, destructive, ready to be unleashed. And that's exactly what we saw happen with the judgment scene. The books were open and then all these deeds, misdeeds, I should say the misdeeds of these four monsters were held against them, and God directed judgment. And the message of this particular vision is God has not forgotten their evil ways. He will bring them into judgment eventually. Its particular significance in this context has to do with the fourth kingdom and its God-defying little horn, as the verse so clearly indicates. Verse 11, we see the judgment was pronounced against this boasting little horn. Daniel watched it being slain. And I think we've got to see this vision as to how Daniel sees it. This beast is a kingdom or dominion. This horn is a ruler or dynasty of rulers. The destruction of the body of these creatures is the fall of their empires. And the fact that it was given to the burning flame symbolizes the final end of their wicked kingdoms. And then when we go to verse 12, we see the end of the fourth beast altogether. And that was different than third beast. The fourth beast was utterly meted out with some terrible destruction. And then I'll get you right there. Versus what happened to the three beasts? They just kind of simply went away. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Yes. What, what were you saying the little horn was? Uh, it just was a little, it was a king, a king or a kingdom that rose up within the fourth beast. Yeah, it, it really doesn't say who it is. And there's probably debates on who was the little horn, okay? Uh, people actually, I mean, there's lots and lots of discussions of who it was, but um, I'll tell you what, at 10 till 8, you can talk about it. <laughs> yes, sir. Historians usually assign that one horn that grew up was the division that came at the latter part of the Roman Empire between the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Empire. Yeah, I, I had, it seemed like the stuff that I've been reading kind of leaned toward that as well, toward the end. Um, but since it really doesn't, we really don't know, I just decided almost not to even go down that that. Uh, that road because I can go down those roads, believe me. <laughs> um, it's very, very interesting. But I think there's, as we mentioned, there's verses 13 and 14, unquestionably recommend the climax of this great vision. And it's probably one of the most important texts in Daniel. Some have wished the judgment in this scene of verses 9 through 12 as taking place on the earth. 
tied to supposedly Christ's rule on the earth for a thousand years. But I want you to be reminded that where is the ancient of days pictured in this? He's pictured in heaven with the heavenly host surrounding him. And in this instance, the son of man is portrayed as being brought to the ancient of days. So it's not an earthly judgment, nor is it an earthly enthronement ceremony. Heaven is definitely the place of this dramatic scene that is being depicted here. The center of attention that is being, the spotlight is being shown in 13 and 14 is one like the Son of Man. And I think that catches Daniel's attention. It's like this, well, what's this human being coming to heaven for? Why is he so special? And he's like the prophet Peter mentioned. There's lots of things that they were told that they would love to look into, but they're not told the details. But he, it does catch his, his attention. Uh, he said in contrast to the four horrible beasts and this irrational little horn that keeps saying all these pompous words, uh, he's attended by the clouds of heaven, which are often used describing an accompaniment of deity. And it also seems to be, to me, beyond question that the Son of Man in this context is not viewed as coming from heaven to earth, but going to heaven from earth. And the simple fact is the ancient of days is God, the throne of his heavenly court among his myriads of his angelic attendants is there. It's in heaven and not upon the earth. Verse 14 we see a, a description of what is represented or what is presented of this newly crowned king. That is the son of man who was brought before the ancient of days. He received his coronation, his intended blessings. He then was given dominion. He was given glory. He was given a kingdom. Who was the son of man? Who, was often, who took upon the expression the son of man in the New Testament? Jesus did. Matthew alone, 29 times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. You can go read all those. Um, so we have a kingdom that has been delivered to us. He talked about the kingdom being at hand. We're part of this kingdom now. We've been translated out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Um, Premillennialists, and this is maybe the last thing I get to say, Premillennialists expect the scene depicted in these verses to be realized at the second coming of Christ. But that just doesn't line up with, uh, with Scripture for a number of reasons. Their approach, as we mentioned last week, simply disregards the church age. They call it the great parenthesis because they believe that the clock stopped when the church was started in Acts chapter 2. It will not begin to tick again until the final events of history are poured. Yet, for almost 2,000 years, Jesus has been ruling in his spiritual kingdom when he ascended to the throne, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, and God gave him the throne. And if it was on pause for 2,000 years, it seems that the Holy Spirit, Peter, and Paul never got the message because they've been preaching that the kingdom has been in existence for 2,000 years. People were being added from it and added to it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 24. When the end comes, he will deliver what? The kingdom to the Father. When the end comes in the New Testament, it's not the beginning of the kingdom. It is the end of the kingdom at the second coming of Jesus Christ. He will deliver the kingdom which he is now king of kings, lord of lords, that he is reigning in heaven, with no physical reign upon earth. He will deliver that to the Father 
as part of the entire divine plan. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. What is the manifold wisdom of God? The church, the kingdom of God. And on one other passage, Acts chapter 2. Remember in the very first sermon, beginning in verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that from the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. A king sitting on the throne demands that he has a kingdom that he is ruling over, an active kingdom, not a kingdom on pause. Okay? Just like God is active, so is Christ. He's active in his kingdom. I want to end this particular section with a quote from a commentary that Dan King wrote. I thought he had a, I'm just going to quote what he said. Daniel permits us a glimpse into the throne room of heaven as Jesus the Christ was brought by the angels to the heavenly throne and seated there at the right hand of God. His coronation was richly deserved because he had taken upon himself human flesh and had so become a son of man in every sense in which this description is true of any human being, having been tempted at all points like we are yet without sin. And there's a bunch of scriptures he uses here. He tasted death for every man as the sinless lamb of God and so had by himself purged our sins and because of all this, he had sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews chapter one, verse three. There he will continue to sit and, join the, and enjoy the lavish praise, adoring worship and thankful admiration of his willing followers from every nation under heaven until the sound of the last trumpet when the dead shall rise and he delivers up the kingdom of God. And he goes on to say some other things. What was the prophet's reaction to this in verse 15? Well, he was troubled what he saw. And so he reached out to this person and said, what's all this mean? And now you're going to expect this long dissertation of what it means. He tells them in two verses what it means. Verse 17, he said, the beast which are four or four kingdoms which arise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive an eternal kingdom to dwell in forever and forever and forever. And that's your answer. <laughs> but I was expecting something longer than that. <laughs> no, that is the answer. Oh, it's that simple? It's that simple. But he said, I want to know more. So he goes to the end of the chapter saying, tell me more about this fourth beast. And guess what he does? He tells them a little bit more about the fourth beast, but does he give them a lot of details? <laughs> no, not at all. Finally, in verse 28, he says, I'm amazed. <clears throat> I'm shaken. I don't understand it. It scares me what I've seen. But basically it says, I'm just going to accept it as it is. It's what God's allowed me to know, and that's it. There's, more that, there's no more that can happen. And with that, these, uh, these guys are going to come in. Thank you.